Well, welcome to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And today, we're going to have listener questions and attempt to answer those. Yeah, so just want to give a shout out or a thank you to everyone that's uh, listened with us so far. We're excited to kind of start a, a second part of the year here off strong and kind of wrap up kind of the first portion of us doing this we thought we would do some q a and uh, appreciate those that sent questions in or have just reached out from a from a saying hi and saying you appreciate kind of what we're doing it's been more fun than i expected so i think we're going to keep on doing it yeah this is uh episode 20 in our first season so it's kind of a milestone and we're pretty excited about that so jared writes in um it says i put a length of copper pipe in my water tanks to keep algae from growing would this be okay for sheep or could this be toxic to them and uh my first thought is i didn't know that copper pipe would keep algae from growing i kind of thought that was kind of cool and I don't think it would cause an issue at all because uh, a lot of our water lines, uh, especially back, I don't know how many years, uh, in a lot of barns was made out of copper. Yeah, and that was kind of my initial thought without you know being a, a plumber or uh, someone that knows anything about metal to a high degree. Um, you know, I we use it all the time and in housing, um, maybe less so now than what we used to. And so I, I would be surprised by kind of the free floating copper idea that those animals could actually, uh, get a significant level of copper from that pipe uh, in the water, but that would be my take on it. But again, I, that might take some additional investigative work. Yeah. I have a, a waterer. It's called the jug. It's, I guess that's the name of the company, and it has a stainless tube in it, and it has a copper tube in it. And I guess the theory behind that is simply that the the stainless and the copper would heat up at, at uh, or change temperatures at, at different rates. And they say that that creates water flow, and that's supposed to help it to keep from freezing. So mine still freezes up. I don't know if that has if it really works all that well, but there is a copper <laughs> pipe in there, and I've never had an issue with copper toxicity from that. So yeah, yeah, and even you know if there is some, um, I guess copper shedding that is occurring in the water, I'd be surprised that it's it's coming in at a level significant enough to. Um, to cause toxicity issues in those sheep. Yeah, you'd have to think the parts per million would be pretty small. And then if you're going to divide that over however many sheep, I would think that level is still going to be incredibly small. Right. So uh, another fellow by the name of Michael wrote in and said, uh, just started listening to the podcast. Was curious if you guys could talk about harvest and flock selection. Um. He wanted to know when, why, and how you select sheep for meat harvest. Yeah, I actually like this question quite a bit because it's something that um, I don't think we talk about enough on the on the when animals are ready and 
And especially when we're thinking on the in the U.S., we've got a lot of different types and kinds of of sheep. And so, you know, really, it's looking at what is the terminal endpoint we need to meet. Uh, you know, if it's if it's for personal consumption, maybe it matters a little bit less than in a retail setting. But at the end of the day, I'd still like to get the most out of that animal for myself. Uh, because there's an investment involved in feeding and caring for that that individual throughout the production cycle. So it really starts with breed selection and what your ewes look like, what the ram you're using looks like. For example, in our situation, Tom, with those Katahdins, we're probably finishing out around 100 to 120 mm-hmm. is what we would kind of view as a terminal endpoint because our our sheep are not huge uh if we've got some dorset ewes that are averaging you know 175 to 200 pounds and i'm bringing in a suffolk ram as a terminal sire to put on those dorset ewes to make some speckle face lambs i can probably run them to a a more traditional endpoint of 130 to 150 in an economical fashion uh, but getting getting them to that weight isn't an issue. I can do that in a timely manner, and that's that's the time that I would want to slaughter. But it really comes down to, I guess, less uh, less of the days on feed if we're we're moving out of a kind of intensive feedlot situation, and more on the level of condition would be what I would I would look at. So if you've got some some slaughter lambs, Tom. Where are you looking to see if they're finished? Well, honestly, I don't know that we really do look for a finish on them as much as uh, I know if we're if we're looking at freezer lambs, we're really kind of basing it more on weight. Just like you said, okay. We want to have when we finish up, we want to have somewhere between thirty-five and forty-five pounds of of uh, product left, and so we're kind of getting them to that 105 to 115 pound mark and figuring they're good to go. Right. And you're operating with around a 50, we kind of assume 50% of that live weight just as a rule of thumb. And, and, you know, people can argue whether it's 56, whether it's 60 and it's, it's a shot in the dark for the individual. You know, I always tell people if you're planning for 50% of that live weight, so on a 120 pound lamb, you're looking at a, a 60 pound hang weight. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, once that animal is processed, you're probably looking around that 25 pound. Um, I'm sorry, another 50% of that 60 pound. So like that 30 pound mark is what you're, you're looking at total product, leaving the butcher going into the freezer mm-hmm. uh, or leaving that processing room and going into your freezer, your customer's freezer. And and that's just kind of rule of thumb that we, not just on the sheep side of things, but the slaughter process in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess for condition, I, I would agree with you. We're looking at, at that weight first on the condition side of things. If we've got a lamb that weighs 120 pounds, but is a body condition score, I go to feel its spine, body condition score of like two. Yeah. Then I'd question if that lamb is really is worth slaughtering at that point because I I would question 
uh, the degree of finish on that animal, regardless yeah. of weight. Because that fat cover just And is. so that's what I, yeah, that's what I would look at is, is kind of that spine area, that body condition. Generally in our, in our commercial uh, areas of production, we're going to look for fat deposition right behind the front shoulders. Mm-hmm. So over the rib cage, just fat cover over the rib cage. And the only reason we're looking for fat for fat cover is uh, to prevent a degree of shrinking in the cooler when we're rapidly cooling that, that animal down. Mm. Um, and so that's something, you know, I think the second part of that question is how do you decide which ones go to quote unquote freezer camp? And which ones get to stick around? And I, is that on the ewe lambs or just anything? It just says uh, just the why and the how. I, I know when I read it, my my first thought was, well, anything that I am not going to want to keep for breeding stock uh, or sell for breeding stock would definitely be in that category. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great if we just start to look at kind of basic selection criteria out of our U flock and goes back to record keeping those U lambs. If I only need to keep a, a certain number and there's a significant, if I've got a significant market to sell lamb into that's profitable, there's a lot of those sheep that, that end up going that route. And so say I have a set replacement rate of whatever percentage you need in that flock. So if I've got 20 U's, and I know to, I know I need to keep uh, five ewe lambs back. Maybe I'm left with twelve other ewe lambs. If I can't sell those as commercial ewe lambs to somebody else, to another producer, and they're good sheep, and I've got that uh, market for the freezer lamb, that's when you can get kind of specific on. Let's look at our group of of 15 to 20 ewe lambs in that specific example, which ones are twin born, which ones, uh, when we're looking at our ewes and we're looking at litter weights, which ewes in the flock are producing our greatest amount of litter weight Uh and which ones maybe aren't. So finding those ewe lambs out of uh, the ewe that's had, maybe for the last three years, she's had a single. Now, I'd argue that 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 you should probably be on the call list sooner rather than later. But I don't know that I need to keep her daughter either. Uh So that would be one that certainly could go on onto that slaughter list uh, for freezer camp. But that's where I would start. Start with those kind of easy to track reproductive traits on on the use and make your selections kind of going out from there. So the next question, uh, you pretty much already answered uh how do you select which lambs will be added to the flock instead of harvesting yeah so i think i would actually start there so i would start with the ones that i need to keep the ones that have genetic value or are performing in my production system well and then after that again as long as i've got the market to to market that that lamb off the farm anything else can go into that slaughter category after I've selected my replacements based on their performance, mom's performance, not only this year, but
happened in previous years and so on and so forth. Yeah, I once heard someone say that when they looked down through and they were making calling decisions, they really looked at uh, not so much which animals you should get rid of, but give me a reason to make me want to keep you. And right. it was kind of the, I, I kind of found that intriguing because it was kind of the opposite side of it. And I thought that's not a bad, bad way to look at it. Yeah. It's a more positive way to, yeah, to go after absolutely. it. Well, and that's, I think when we're talking you lamb selection, that is the way to do it as opposed yeah. to figuring out who I don't want to keep in my you lamb yep. crop, go back through and look at the positives. And say, you know, this ewe we've had for how many years and she's thrown twins every year and they're always on the upper, they're above flock average for weaning weight. Uh And so it's just like, I think some of our early episodes, we've talked about how, you know, I've got ewes that I can tell you their ear tag numbers that if they have daughters, I know I'm keeping them. Yep. Find those ewes that really stand out in their their performance, their on-farm performance that you say, hey, she had a daughter. That's a keeper ewe lamb. We still need to watch how that ewe performs and what kind of the the ram side of the genetics are doing. But at the end of the day, if we can really focus on those female ewe lines, I think we're a lot further ahead. I agree. So another question came in. He said, how can we prevent tiny, unthrifty lambs? It says, every year I have several that just don't grow well. They keep scouring. Uh, They're just generally sickly. Is this lack of colostrum and milk? Genetics? Maybe environment? Yeah, it sounds like all three. Could be. So certainly when we're looking at colostrum and, and certainly for whoever kind of sent that in, I would not feel too discouraged because that's anybody that's trying to do this out on pasture is, is running into a similar issue. The goal is to reduce the percentage of those lambs that we're, we're seeing every year. And so certainly could be some, some colostrum or lack of colostrum in those early hours of life, uh, just from a, an innate immune system or immune function standpoint. Uh, I, it sounds like if I saw this on my farm, I would think it sounds like I've got a significant coccidia. That was my thought. Um, and so that's a lot of management coming, coming on the backside. So, you know, it spreads through fecal oral contamination and the difficult thing. One of the, the things a colleague here at Penn state, you know, always likes to remind people is. Coccidia does not fight fair. So coccidia waits for a stressed host or for that host to become stressed until they really dive in and and do their damage. And kind of my experience is if you've got a significant infection, if you've got a significant load or impact from that coccidia, it can be very difficult for that animal to come back from just Uh in in long-term performance so and some of the reasons that is and it makes sense when we think of how nutrients are absorbed coccidia impacting kind of the early sections of the small intestine 
it there's tissue damage that's occurring. And so we're losing some cell function, some digestive or absorption of self cell function in that small intestine being replaced in some instances by scar tissue. We're going to lose nutrient uptake. Uh, and so it's a it is a hard thing to come back from in those severe infections and uh, certainly environmental. Uh, there's some immune function that goes into it. Uh, and I suppose there, from a genetic standpoint, I don't know how much plays into you know, resistance to coccidia or mm-hmm. uh, kind of what's going on, but that would be kind of where I would start. And certainly, you know, when we're looking at, at catching that early, and an early treatment of, you know, an improleum product or a, a sulfa type product, uh, working with your veterinarian to, to kind of figure out what the best option is, or running through a medicated feed with a coccidiostat in it, um, like a decox or a yeah. uh, Bovatec type product for the prevention of those severe coccidia. That situations. Yeah, and that's not the easiest thing to do on pasture. No, it's very difficult. And even, you know, you can spend all the money you want to on Crete. And if those lambs don't eat it, doesn't doesn't do you any good. And yeah. the issue with just running it in the water, when we're thinking about broad spectrum treatment, running it in, in our water tanks, uh, which is what a lot of those treatments suggest you know when we're thinking of dosage who's getting this are our lambs actually drinking water yet in those early infections so it can be difficult and i know a couple of farms that i've worked with have already seen some resistance in their coccidia populations so like mm-hmm. covert's not working effectively uh, which is terrifying um yeah you know, it's back to where we are on the dewormer front of things but yeah, that's kind of where I would start is maybe if we move those sheep a little more rapidly, because again, it's fecal oral contamination. Yeah. So if, if those lambs aren't being forced to eat where that fecal material has been or has impacted, uh, that could, that could see improvement. And it's the same reason, you know, we don't necessarily feed sheep right on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. we'd like to get that feed up off the ground. Uh, yep. but yeah, that's, that would be my thought. Have you dealt with coccidia here in the past, Tom? I'm pretty sure we've had some doses of it. Um, honestly, we just didn't treat for it. We just kind of put up with those lambs that weren't real thrifty and, and, uh, and just kind of kept them a little longer until they reached that weight that we could harvest yeah, it's pretty frustrating because not the best those lambs aren't, aren't those lambs aren't worth anything to sell. Yeah, and they take forever to feed, uh, and so you either decide, well, I'm I, you're either going to put them down, you're either going to feed them for a while to get them back to where they need to be, and then sell them, or uh, put them into the flock and hope for the best long, long term, but yeah, it's, it's really, 
kind of dealer's choice on that, on what yeah. what route you go with with a bad situation. So Jared also asked, uh, what do you recommend for deworming at lambing time? He said, I've never dewormed a mother around lambing. And honestly, I've only dewormed less than 10 mature ewes since I started in 2017. Um, he does admit he should keep a closer eye on Fomanches, but his management, he said, like mine, is uh, pretty much gives him a free pass until times get tough. Now, I know I hear quite a few people say that they just, as soon as a, a ewe lambs, before she ever comes out of that jug, she's going to get wormed. And we've never done that. We just uh, kind of check Fomanches and think we're in good shape, and we've not run into an issue with that. Yes, there's a couple of reasons why that's kind of common practice. And it goes back to how our, our parasite of primary concern, the barber pole worm or Hamonchus contortus, in their, their own production phase or their own life cycle, uh, they can go through a state of hypobiosis. And mm -hmm. meaning when the weather is less conducive, for the next generation of parasites to thrive and survive out in the environment. So items like drought conditions, items like wintertime, you yep. know, where it's going to get cold, that parasite has a, a lower chance of survival out in the environment. Uh, and, and so they go into hyperbiosis, which is a fun way of just saying arrested development meaning they kind of shut down and uh, quote-unquote hibernation inside the animal. Uh, and so then what triggers that is lactation. And yeah. lactation being a part of lambing, uh, items like prolactin, triggering that, that arrested development to cease and that parasite to, to wake up per se occurs around lambing and which is kind of terrifying when you think about it and it goes back to that are are they smart <clears throat> question you know what do we have at lambing that's occurring a susceptible host that's in yeah. the environment so even even in our mature use if we've got some uh, acquired immunity uh, through seeing that parasite before we have a naive animal now out in the environment the lamb and uh -huh. that parasite has the goal of infecting that lamb for for subsequent generations so the reason behind the lambing at in not the lambing yeah lambing in the jug but the deworming in the jug it's kind of twofold so if we're using jugs and we're penning those sheep up we've got hands on them uh -huh. so we don't have to catch them a second time Yep. Our hope is by giving that dewormer at that point, we are eliminating that parasite from producing eggs, from producing that next generation in the environment that our lambs are going to be living. Uh, and so that's why, and I think it, it goes back more to the, the labor aspect. You know, we're in there, we're processing lambs, we're checking on the ewe. It doesn't take me any additional time to give that dose of dewormer. Uh, and so, again, I think we still have to be careful with our broad spectrum use of treatment. 
because that's what got us into the issue in the first time um, or the first go around with all of our drugs. But but if we're going to to have a flock wide deworming de- uh, deworming treatment, um, it probably needs to occur around around that time uh, because we know we've got hands on and we know we have susceptible hosts that are going to be in the environment through the lambs and kind of the goal of cleaning up that that flock uh, before giving those lambs the best chance they have at, uh-huh. at uh, oh at survival and just dealing with you know things they're going to see in the environment so that's that would be considered the periparturient rise so that awakening of parasites and we'll see an increase in fecal egg count in ewes that are that have lambed and are now lactating that is the name for that time frame Hmm. well that was all the questions i had i know you've got one or two don't you yeah so uh had a question gentleman jeff from indiana was asking uh if we had any experience on uh turnip or radish usage i know you've planted some some in a mix i didn't know if you wanted to share that and specifically grazing sheep on them he was concerned items of of bloat, uh, any type of digestive upset, uh, and just overall performance, what you saw and what you liked about them? So I put a field in. Um, Paul, there's a number of things in there, but the, what came up the most was oats and this purple top turnip. And biggest issue I had was uh, keeping CJ's little boy out of there because he liked eating the turnips. He kept going in, pulling them out of the ground, cleaning them off, and just eat them. He loved them. Uh, the sheep just devoured them. They thought they were just the, the greatest thing in the world. I had absolutely no issue with bloat or any kind of digestive problems with them, not, at least that I could see. And uh, the big difference I noticed between the sheep and the cows were that the sheep, that the cows just ate the tops and pretty much just left the turnips but the sheep would actually kind of dig the turnips out and eat them, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And that's something we've planted some purple top turnips as well as uh, some tillage type radishes in a, just interceded into an existing hay field. And ultimately I was very pleased kind of with the results from that, uh, from a, performance standpoint you know they were they were i guess early gestating ewes uh Uh or or into mid gestating ewes and so i couldn't tell you if we really gained or lost i know we didn't lose um yeah body condition but i don't know like lamb performance i've never run any lambs on on that type of uh alternative forage and you know i was pleased from the added biomass that we had available to those sheep uh, one thing, and certainly we've had some fields around us that you know, have gone on, gone in with a tillage radish type, uh, whether it's a daikon or whatever other trade name you think of, and as a cover crop, and just the smell, absolutely horrendous. Uh, once those in the spring, once those things start to to rot and go bad. So yeah. I don't think the sheep would be a huge fan of them. Um, you know, in, in that 
kind of time frame uh, and, and something the sheep actually did it did a job uh, grazing them that I would be concerned in, in subsequent years with a with a hay harvest. You know, am I raking up that uh, decomposing material? Yeah. Once I go out and make a first cutting on it, I do know I found one uh, about fell over, you know, stepped in, stepped on one that was decomposing and like slipped. Uh, yeah. Took, <laughs> took my momentum out from under me. But, uh, you know, ultimately, I think they're a great tool to add to add in that biomass, add some protein to that diet. And similar to, to what you had mentioned, whether they could pull them up out of the ground or they would just eat them almost to ground level. If that bulb was sticking out of the ground, they would mm-hmm. eat that bulb to the dirt. Uh, yeah. So we still had some some of our like tillage attributes from that that radish and turnip, but uh, all of the top biomass had been removed. So it was just kind of fun to to see that. I would definitely like to do it again. And certainly I would say doesn't take a lot of seed, might be a little on the expensive side, but just give it a try and see what you like about it. And then the last question I had for you, Tom, uh, Beth from New York was asking, when we're thinking about forage species selection and she's looking at converting some crop fields into pasture and figured I'd ask you because you're the, the grass guy, um, kind of what's your approach to finding species? Do you make your own mix? How many species do you want to put in? Because uh, she just kind of mentioned it's a little overwhelming to look at all of these different kind of trade named mixes you know whether it's a creekside mix or a hillside mix or whatever um you know how do you know you're getting the right stuff and uh, are you better off kind of going out on your own and just combining a bunch of different things together to to get what you want i tend to buy a mix um i guess it kind of has a lot of what I already have growing on the farm and then I'll kind of add things in. I I heard a guy say years ago, if you want to know what grows on your farm, go look in the hedgerows, go look uh, in the roadside ditches as to what's growing there. Cause that stuff isn't being fertilized and nobody ever seeded it. It's uh, and there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I I know I went to a, a grazing conference years ago and there was, a couple breakout sessions my dad had gone with me and and uh i wanted to go to this one breakout session so i sent him to another where they were talking about you know seeds and forage and all that and uh and so i i sat through my session and was just kind of all excited to see what he had to say about his and he came out and i said so what did he tell you to plant dad and he said ah orchard grass and clover I said, you're kidding me. He goes, well, they talk a lot about other stuff, but orchard grass and clover, you just can't go wrong with that. And there's a lot of truth to that. There really is. (laughs) That's funny. I felt, felt a little called out on that one. Cause it's, if, if there, if there is something we're trying to, to do quick, it's like, well, I guess we'll just throw some, just plain old, plain old orchard grass and some (laughs) cheaper red clover I can find. And yeah. um, We'll we'll go from there. And and you're right. And you hope some of that other stuff comes up. You were talking about just 
uh, kind of those hedgerows or, or fence row areas and what's growing there and what's not fertilized and was on a pasture walk recently over in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. And gentleman was talking about he had had a farmer come over and, and do some custom spraying for him. And he missed the line where he was supposed to stop. Uh-huh. And so it sprayed a significant part of his his field. And um, I forget what the, you know, it had died. He went through and I believe he disked it lightly. And then everything in the world came up. Yeah. And so he went out and he mowed it. You know, it was a nice, he, he disked it, finished it. It came out. And I think there was some weather events that occurred in there that prevented him from getting on and, and replanting it. But, you know, he said, you, we had some noxious weed species, but we grazed it and then we mowed it. And, and we're looking at this field and this was, you know, 10 years down the road. You'd never know, you know, it's oh, beautiful. Know. And it was just native seed bank yep. for the area. And it was, it was diverse. It was lush. You know, it was, yep. it was just a really nice, uh, mix of forage that he's you know finishing off some some steers on you know 100 grass grass finish and they look beautiful and and it it would be fun sometime to try something like that just to see yep. you know I've, I've spent the money on the seed can i disc this area up kill what's there and then see what comes up and how mm-hmm. does it perform long term next to the stuff that i'm buying in yep I agree. A lot of our pastures, even though we have taken some of those and we've seeded in certain things, there is certainly an awful lot of stuff in there that we didn't see. And it just came up. And it's, you know, I, I suppose that if you want to be a purist, you would call those weeds. My sheep are eating them, so I'm not concerned. But I've got Timothy and orchard grass in places. I've never planted Timothy and orchard grass. There's all kinds of stuff. So while we're coming up on our time here, Cam. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun in this last twenty episodes, and uh, we definitely want to thank everybody for listening. We'd like you to get on there and hit that follow button. We also have a Facebook page called the Grazing Sheep Podcast, so if you would hunt that up and be sure to go on there and hit the like button. And uh, so, if you have any other questions, you know we'll definitely do another listener question podcast at some point, and uh, so you can. Ask those questions either on that Facebook page or you can reach out to me personally at uh, BigTomPerkins at gmail.com. So it's been great catching up with you, Cam. You too, Tom. All right. You have a good day, my friend. You did the same. All right. Bye.